William Faulkner was a southern novelist uh, 20th century said the past is never dead it's not even past hmm that's not a very American way of thinking about the past but it's a real way of thinking about the past. If you think about your own experience, I've been processing with this therapist for, I don't know, I've been seeing him for like over a year. I've been processing some difficult past events and I, I don't know, I was talking to him. I was saying, it feels like I should be over this now. It's not like your therapy's bad, but like what's wrong with me that I'm still, I'm still needing to talk through this, that, and the other. And he said, you know, Ken, events aren't locked away in a place that we call the past, events send waves through time and we're always like riding those waves. I was like, well, yeah. That's a better way to think about like how we go through life and how what we think of as the past affects us in the, in the present. And then even on the most positive side, this is the Feast of Pentecost. This is like a big deal in the Christian calendar. This is as uh, Xander in that powerful reading uh, conveyed. This is the time when the 120 disciples, followers of Jesus, were gathered like behind closed doors. They were still a very frightened group of people. This would have been 50 days, you know, seven weeks after the events of the crucifixion that were followed by rumors of resurrection. And those rumors of resurrection, you know, made the disciples even uh, more nervous because in the Jewish thinking, revolution, you know, um, resurrection is like revolution. And so to have a, a rabbi who's lynched and then there's rumors circulating that he's risen from the dead. This would have been very threatening to the power structure of the day. And these 120, they must have been in a room about this size, maybe a little bit smaller. They were gathered together praying. They were doing what people do when they're scared. They were praying. And then the Spirit came as they were praying. And, and as the reading indicated, a ruckus ensued. And this timid band found themselves thrust from this very like private sphere into a suddenly public sphere, an open sphere that, that people were drawn from all different nations. They were, they were there for the feast um, and, and people who spoke different languages who were coming and they were hearing these people speak in languages that they didn't understand. And, but the significant thing is that they moved from this private, hidden place to this much more open space. Uh, reminds me of Jesus. I wonder if he was foretelling this when he said, what is whispered in secret will be shouted from the rooftop. Something like that was going on. Um, I was just out to see uh, A.D. Wasink. She's a pastor in the Blue Ocean Network. She's at the Sanctuary Church in Iowa City, which she founded. And um, she told me about a visit. She made a visit, uh, a, a kind of a pilgrimage to the new lynching memorial in Montgomery, Alabama. Two of her daughter-in-laws are African-American. And um, and. And Aidy herself grew up in Skokie, Illinois, in a Jewish family. She grew, grew up in a, in a, among Holocaust survivors in Skokie, Illinois. And, um, and so she's very attuned to this question of scapegoating. And, and the Pentecost feast that we're celebrating today happened in the immediate wake of a, of a big scapegoat event. And, you know, the key move um, that happens, the key spiritual move, when people witness scapegoating, and any scapegoating event always involves perpetrators, but it's empowered by a vast array of bystanders. And when the bystanders 
move from private support of the scapegoated one to public support, that is a really big deal. So our gay and transgender members know that, you know, the private assurance you get from Uncle Ed, you know, who comes up to you, and maybe you're in a family system that's not very supportive of who you are, and, but your Uncle Ed comes up to you, you know, at Thanksgiving and pulls you inside and says, you know, I, I totally support you. I totally support you. You know, that, that really means very little if Uncle Ed is not willing to make his support known to the rest of the family and actually be an ally in your family system. So the Spirit on Pentecost came on this gathering of privately supporting Uncle Ed's. Um, but the Spirit that came was the Spirit of pure love. This is the understanding of the Spirit in the apostolic writings that God is love and the Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus who embodies love. And so when this Spirit comes on them, the effect of the Spirit on the people upon whom it comes is it drives out fear. And as the Spirit came on them, driving out their fear, they naturally moved from the private sphere into the open public sphere. They went from, in a sense, the unreal to the real in that movement, which is the only place we meet the real God. So interesting that in the Gospels, whenever Jesus appeared to the disciples after his resurrection, and there are a number of post-resurrection appearances in the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, immediately, the first thing out of his mouth when he comes into the, into the room through the door, just manifests, appears, is, peace be with you, or a variant on that, don't be afraid. And then in one, I think it's John 20, he puts them both together, don't be afraid. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. This is all moving in unison together. So we're in a series called the 12 Steps for, for Anyone. And what we're looking at in this series is not so much like expert advice on the 12 steps. I, I couldn't give that. Uh, many of you could in ways that I couldn't. But we're looking at the spirituality that underlies the 12 steps. We're looking at the, the um, AA as a manifestation of a move of the Spirit uh, starting in, what, 1935 and, and moving into this day. And I, I want to situate um, the 12 steps in relation to Pentecost because I think what the 12 steps are actually doing is that progressively they're taking the practitioner of the steps through and beyond their fears into a place of greater liberty and freedom. So steps one to three. Oh, by the way, does anyone want a copy of the 12 steps? I had like some extras here. It does have one typo, but you can figure it out. Um, uh, Satish, I'll give that to you. Raise your hand if you want a copy of the 12 steps. He can pass those. Our, our own Satish Ramadeh, very cool person. Um, the, the first three steps are about surrender to, um, to the higher power, we would say the spirit, and through that process the spirit begins to come and, and that process of driving out fears begins. Then in steps four through nine, we're able to um, face ourselves, which we can only do as we're progressively liberated from fear. We're able to name things that are difficult realities about ourselves, and we're even able uh, to tell those things to another trusted human being.
anything. If you've ever been through any process like that, you know that fear is what keeps you from doing it. And once you step through it, it's like, it's just like walking through what seemed like a brick wall becomes just like a piece of paper that you can penetrate much more easily once you put your mind to it. In step nine, there even the, the, these amazing people who go through the step, uh, 12 steps are, are making amends to the people that they've harmed with the things about them that make them miserable and the people around them miserable and they go and have like a direct conversation as long as it won't cause further harm. And today we're going to add another move of the spirit through and beyond fear, which is step 10. Continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Wouldn't you love to hang around with people who did step 10 wouldn't that just be the most awesome thing is if your boss every day just took some inventory of ways that you know he managed things that were where oh i can see that i was being too demanding or i was being i was putting i was giving you responsibility but not authority and and at the end of the day he'd kind of review his day and say yeah and then comes to you the next day and says, you know, I noticed I did that. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry about that. I'll, I'll try to do better if you have any advice for me on how I could be a better manager to you. I'd love to hear it. Wouldn't it be great to be like married to someone who, who practiced the step 10? Wouldn't it be great to just be interacting with people who had this in their like uh, wheelhouse that, that it wasn't like, wasn't like a, a miracle when it happened? Um, and yet, when we look at step 10, we're like, oh my God, I don't know if I could ever do that. <laughs> Continue to take personal inventory. And when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Surely you've done this as I have. You have some uh, very disorderly or chaotic uh, part of your life. Um, let's keep it simple and non-moralistic and call it a messy basement. Or in my case, I meant to bring you my laptop and show you my desktop on my laptop. Oh my lord. It's just it's the most cluttered desktop on my laptop. The thing is, this is what happened to me, it's probably happened to you, you procrastinate cleaning up that messy space because it's so messy. And then the longer that you procrastinate, the messier it gets. And the more daunting it is, to, the longer it's going to take you to deal with it. And so you procrastinate more and more. It gets worse and worse. It becomes the, un, the unclimbable mountain in your life. And then a loved one does an intervention. This was my son. He saw my laptop one day, the desktop on my laptop. He said, Dad, you know that, that like sucks battery out of your, out of your uh, laptop, having a, your desktop running like that and having all, I said, it does? That's why I'm having to rejuvenate my battery every five minutes. And, and he said, you can do something about that. I was like, like what? He said, have you heard about folders? <laughs> like, I see folders, but I don't really know how to make folders. And he walked me through how you create folders and put things. And it's like, oh, it seemed like a lot of work, but it was I had my son. He was telling me I need to do this. I got busted. I did my searching and fearless moral inventory. And I'm like, he's right. And I got some help. He was my sponsor for a period of time. And I put a surge of energy into cleaning up my, my desktop. It felt so good. I don't know if you've ever been through that thing where you like lose 25 pounds. Like 
you do the protein power diet and it works, you know. And, and if you're a man, it works like in, 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 in two months you can lose 25 pounds, you know, just by eating protein. I did that one time and I slimmed right down. I was looking at myself. I'm, I am so svelte. Hey, I can, go to, I can go to Dairy Queen again, you know. I, and, I, and the thing is, I was going to Dairy Queen and like I was still felt for quite a period of time. But then over time, there was an accumulation. And it's like, oh no, I don't want to go on protein power again. See, see, we stop at step nine. That's, that's like the surge. So, you know, in step nine, did a searching and fearless moral inventory and then the ninth step is to actually make amends to those people that you've harmed in your life directly in the gospel the, the great story for step nine is the example of Zacchaeus which interestingly um, he's a tax collector so he's like a bad dude but in Hebrew Zacchaeus means pure or innocent and he lives in Jericho where he's the tax collector. The tax collectors, of course, were despised. They were like Jewish collaborators. They were colluding with the Roman Empire and, and they were making money out of their collusion. And um, he's a man of short stature and Jesus is coming into Jericho and Jesus by this time is like a phenom. He's like everyone wants to see Jesus. He hears word that Jesus and his retinue are coming in and so he starts running. You know we picture this like man of short stature running and he goes up a sycamore tree and there so he can get a look at this you know this messianic crusader Jesus who's a healer and all that. And as he's walking in Jesus sees um, Zacchaeus up in that sycamore tree and he says Zacchaeus like he names him and he says I must have dinner with you this day he invites himself over for dinner it's like a high honor for Zacchaeus to be singled out like that by G everyone wants to have dinner with Jesus Jesus picks out Zacchaeus says I must have dinner with you today Zacchaeus scrambles down Jesus goes with him and has dinner in what would have been like a pretty wealthy compound area and then after dinner you know everyone everyone's just so mad that Zacchaeus gets this honor and there's a lot of grumbling and rumbling and Zacchaeus comes out with Jesus after dinner and Zacchaeus announces that he's giving away half his wealth Wealth, and if he has defrauded anyone, I like that, you know, if I have defrauded anyone, I will repay you fourfold. And that began what for him must have been the longest step nine <laughs> in history. Uh, and that was, that was quite a search, uh, step nine. But step 10 in the Gospels is continued to take personal inventory when we were wrong promptly admit it the example of that is in line four of the Lord's Prayer so our Father who art in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us today our daily bread and then and and the end is important because the and pairs the fourth line with the third my fingers don't do it on their own and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us or forgive us our debts or forgive us our trespasses. So line four is paired with line three because it's intended as a daily practice. So this is step nine. So what might a daily practice look like? Um, first, a little, little bit of background as we wind up to the daily practice. Thing one, the importance of regard. 
of regard, R-E-G-A-R-D. For years, you know, the big focus um, on teaching people skills. If you were in being business and, you know, you having that annual review with your boss and your boss says, uh, I think you need to improve your people skills. It's like, okay, I have a, a guy, a friend of mine, he's uh, really, really good at his job. He had his annual review and, and the guy said, uh, you need to improve your people skills. And he's like, what can I do? He was like, well, talk about football more. His friend did, could care less about football, so, you know, sure enough, he started following football so he could talk about football with the guys, and that was apparently improving his, his people skills. You know, so we've all heard, you know, how to listen, you know, m making eye contact, but not too much eye contact, uh, using your eye messages, you know, that's people skills, uh, not asking why questions, you know, that can be perceived as threatening. It's like, you know, you gotta, you gotta develop your people skills. Well, it turns out it's actually very difficult to improve your relationships by focusing on your people skills. <laughs> there are just too many people skills to gain. They're too subtle, they're, they're, they're too discreet, and your brain just can't handle like improving your people skills. And when you think about it, we don't want people using their people skills on us, do we? You know? I mean, <laughs> you know what that's like, you know? I know what you're doing. You're using your people skills on me, and I don't appreciate that. We want people to care about us. We want people who regard us favorably or who are concerned about us. And human beings have an amazing capacity to kind of discern that about other people. Of course, you know, we do projection and we do transference and we misread from time to time. But generally speaking, we're pretty good at just sensing how people regard us. You know, the verb to regard means to consider or think of someone or something in a specified way. The noun regard means attention to or concern for someone or something. Regard. So what really matters is not our people skills per se, but how we regard the people that we interact with on a day-to-day -day basis. What's the state of our heart toward those people? Are we resentful? Are we full of envy? Are we judging? Are we critical? Are we contemptuous? Are we kind? Are we loving? Are we merciful? Are we understanding? How do we regard the people in our lives? This might be a little crass analogy, but think of regard as the pig and people skills are the lipstick that we slap on the pig. You know? But this is basically the pig is what really matters in this thing. So that's thing one, the importance of regard as over and against people skills. And then thing, thing two, this is all by way of background, remember, is a couple of AA um, fear slogans. Um, here's a good one. This is one of those... Is it an acrostic or an acronym? I can't remember. Every letter stands for something. Fear equals frustration 
ego, anger, resentment, F-E-A-R. Fear equals frustration, ego, anger, and resentment. So if you're noticing those things, frustration, ego, offense, anger, resentment, it's very likely that that's in the fear brew one way or another. That's part of the fear cocktail. Frustration, ego, anger, resentment. I like that one. And then here's a second slogan from AA on fear. Courage is fear that has said its prayers. Courage is fear that has said its prayers. So now I want to put thing one and thing two together with an example. And my example is Deborah Garcia Wagner. Deborah Garcia Wagner is one of our um, kid whispers in, in Sunday school. Like, if I talk to Sunday school teachers about, like, what's going on, and I'm like, who's really good at this? Everyone mentions Deborah, Deborah um, Garcia Wagner. And now, if you've seen Deborah Garcia Wagner operate with a group of kids, you know that she has, like, a bag of tricks. She's got some methods. She has ways of telling stories. She's always thinking about, you know, the environment and candles and, and props. And sometimes she's just carrying a big bag of things into, into her uh, classroom. But what she really has is regard for children. She's one of those people that just notices children, thinks of children as, as, as like human beings, you know, that, that they have their own personality and their own substance. And she's just fostered this amazing regard for kids and they can tell. So I was interviewing Deborah about this, like, how did you, how did you get like yourself, you know? And she said, well, I was trained in the Waldorf method. Waldorf is, uh, is like a, an approach to education, you know. Um, I think there's a Waldorf school. There's got to be in, in Ann Arbor. There's like Rudolf Steiner, Waldorf. It's, you know, there's all these different approaches. She was trained in the Waldorf um, method of, of education, and they recommended in Waldorf a nighttime practice and it had two features that the teachers in Waldorf were supposed to every night do, do this kind of little thing. And it had two features. One was to just walk through the day, um, either from the beginning of the day to the end of the day or backwards from the beginning, end of the day to the beginning and just rehearse the different events of the day to recollect literally like what happened that day. But second aspect was especially in that process, to call to mind each student of theirs with um, attention to their gifts and their needs. So a Waldorf teacher doing this would, you know, go through, the, go through the day, the events of the day, and then paying attention especially to the people, the students in particular, and then we're just, you know, like, Johnny, you know, and think about Johnny, you know what Johnny's needs are and what Johnny's gifts are, and then on to the next person. This might take, you know, three, four, five minutes. No, no, big, no big deal. But the, it's a discipline to, like, tend the way we regard people, and it changes our, our heart. So I want to suggest incorporating this practice into your night prayers. Night prayers are just the coolest daggone thing. If, if you just want to improve your life, it might take a while. Try night prayers. So um, in order to do night prayers, you just do this 
at night before you go to bed. And um, it helps to have a little structure. So you could use my favorite, which is the Divine Hours. This is the, uh, have I mentioned this lately? This is the uh, travel edition of the Divine Hours. And it has a prayer at various intervals through the day. And the one for nighttime is called Compline. It's from the Latin complete. I don't know why they don't call it nighttime. But um, the Compline prayer might be, just to look at one, uh, it might be like this long okay here's compline right there it starts there page 61 and it goes through to page 63 but there's an extra long reading so it might just be one page and then another in a small book like this and to do your compline prayers using this you just read through the prayers you know boom 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 um if you want something simpler, you could just pick out a couple of prayers, like uh, two or three prayers. Like you could use the serenity prayer. Um, I think the sorrow prayer is a good Pentecostal prayer, actually. Uh, if you check out your um, uh, program, the red program, red for Pentecost, I guess that's the color. We have the sorrow prayer. It goes, God be in my head and in my understanding. God be in my eyes and in my looking. God be in my mouth and in my speaking. God be in my heart. And in my thinking, God be at my end and at my departing. It's an invocation of the Holy Spirit. It's like, God, come and come into me and come like through me, like inhabit my senses. I mean, this is a mystical Pentecostal prayer for sure, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So I, I would highly recommend for the Pentecost season, the Sarum prayer and maybe the Lord's prayer. So if you don't want to do like a divine hours thingy, you could do sarum prayer or serenity prayer and throw in the Lord's Prayer. And that Lord's Prayer is going to signal you that daily thing of forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And then throw in, as you're saying your prayers, take a few minutes in that context to recall the events of the day and the people you encountered through the day using the trifold lens of gratitude, love, or kindness, and mercy. So, like, we're kind of in charge of how we look at people, aren't we? You know? And how we look at people has a big, has a big effect on how we regard them. And so we're always looking through one lens or another. It might be a critical lens. It might be the lens of envy. It might be who knows what the lens is. But choose to look at people through this trifold lens of gratitude, love, or kindness, and, and mercy. Like they're just a fellow. They're doing their best. They're struggling. Just they, You don't know what they're dealing with in their life. That's a merciful lens. So recall the events of the day looking for opportunities to be thankful for the blessings, thinking about the people that you encountered through that day, maybe a little extra attention to your closest, your, your loved ones, and look at them through that trifold lens of love, mercy, and gratitude. Just, just that as your, as, your, um, as your little discipline. While you're doing that, um, you may realize that, you know, there's, a, there's some static with someone, you know. And then just gently pay attention to what that static is. Maybe fear. Is it, is it what was it? Frustration, ego, anger, or resentment? Uh, then fear is probably somewhere 
in that cocktail. And just note that. Just note that. Okay, there's there's a relationship here where I've got some got some stuff. And then and then move on. The other thing I recommend for night prayers, um, this is good for anxiety, is to have a little notebook on your nightstand, you know. Have a nightstand too, that's highly recommended. Uh, <laughs> what am I, Dr. Phil or something? I'm like organizing your bedroom space. I mean, you, you have your own darn bedrooms. Put wood in there, whatever you want to. But um, a, little, a little notebook with a pen. If something comes up while you're doing this little discipline, that you're going to be fussing about all night, you know. Oh, I forgot to do that. I need to do that. Just jot it down. And then it'll be there for you in the morning. And then you can take care of it. And if there's a relationship, you say, oh, yeah, I, I think I'm dealing with some resentment. Just jot, jot that down, you know. You may in that process say, oh, I really blew it with so-and-so. And I want to I make that better. And I'll do that tomorrow. And you can, you can jot that down. All in the context of a little night prayers. Um, do this with the same kindness toward yourself that you are trying to exhibit toward the other people in your life. So as you're doing this, apply the same lens to yourself, gratitude, kindness, love, and, and mercy. Um, the thing is, um, what casts out fear is not aggression. That language, cast out fear, love casts out fear, sounds aggressive. It sounds like force or something. But actually what casts out fear is love. So fear tightens us up. Love relaxes us. So as the love comes our way, we'll know it's love when we kind of relax in its presence. So keep that in mind as you're going through this uh, process. Okay. So for our quiet reflection, we're going to um, practice a little semi-version of this. I will uh, walk through it in advance so you know what's happening. And then once I've reviewed it, you know what's coming. I'll offer verbal prompts for you to go through it in, in place there. So just to review, um, first I'm going to recommend that we quietly um, use that quiet Pentecostal Sarum prayer. So you might want to get the, your red um, program there with the words of the Sarum prayer on it. I'll, uh, we'll probably pray it together again um, when we start this in unison. And then I'll just have you go through it a couple of times yourself quietly. And then after we've had a little, maybe a minute with the psalm prayer, then I'll just invite you to regard the people that you have interacted with already today with that lens of gratitude, love, or kindness, and mercy. Remembering to regard yourself in the same way as you do this. And then I'll give you a little, you know, 30 seconds or so to do that. And then I'll invite you to add the person to your left, like here in the room, just that person, the person to your right, and the person in front of you. So Satish has got me. <laughs> and just regard that person for a moment with gratitude, with um, mercy, and with, with kindness. You know, it's like, uh, you know, like throw positive vibes into the universe. I don't know. Think about it in whatever way works for you. But regard that person in, in that way. Um, and then um, the third part would be as you anticipate interacting with people today. You might have in mind who you might see after church. Just regard those people in that, in that same way and we'll be done. Is that clear? So we start with the Siren Prayer, then we move on to the regarding our loved ones and people. So let's, let's start by, um, you can take the um, program if you'd like. We're going to pray the Siren Prayer together. So let us pray. God be in my head. 
and in my understanding. God be in my eyes. spend a little time with that sound prayer for yourself, rehearsing it maybe a couple of times. And I'll just leave you to yourselves now for about a minute and just these three categories. First, the regard the people that you've interacted with already today. Add the person to your left and the person to your right, whether you know their name or not, it's not material, and the person in front of you. Regard them through this trifold lens and then add anyone that you anticipate interacting with later in the day. We'll spend about a minute with that. Amen. Very good. Well done, everybody. Let us have.